This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We are going to have a very interesting discussion about sleep, sleep disorders, and measurement of sleep with wearables and in the real sleep lab. And we have a great guest for this episode. Our guest has done his bachelor's degree in psychology, and he's finishing his doctoral degree in clinical psychology at, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His research focuses on improving the assessment, classification, and treatment of hypersomnolence, and also on use of commercially available sleep tracking devices for both clinical research and recreational purposes. He has also just started a podcast of Sleep Research Society, which concentrates on the latest findings in sleep and circadian research. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Mr. Jesse Cook. Welcome, Jesse. Uh, thank you, Ollie. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you for having me on. And I think with that intro, we can just conclude the episode. That that I think I'm going to make it worse from there. Maybe we continue. So should we start? Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, certainly. And I appreciate the the shameless plugs of the Sleep Research Society podcast. I just want to express before going any further that everything I say today is um, not a representation of my training affiliations or my university or the professional organizations I'm connected to, but are uh, just my strange opinions and beliefs uh, and only a reflection of myself. But uh, yeah, as Ollie said, my name is Jesse Cook. I'm a uh, now a, almost a 60-year clinical psychology doctoral student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, my sleep journey really began in, in 2011 as an undergraduate at the University of Arizona. And I was uh, truthfully just trying to find a way to only have courses, classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, because why would you not in your senior year of, of undergrad? Um, and there was a course called Sleep and Sleep Disorders taught by Dr. Richard Bootson. And uh, unbeknowing to me at the time, Dr. Bootson was a pioneer of behavioral treatments for insomnia in the field and a a phenomenal sleep researcher in his own right. Um, But I was attracted to the course because it fit my desires for a Tuesday, Thursday schedule. And I was, for lack of a better term, a bit of a hippie undergrad. And I was like, dreams, the subconscious, this stuff's really groovy. So I signed up and Lo and behold, um, Ollie, it, it opened my eyes to the vast world of sleep. And when I say vast, I mean, I was just blown away by the widespread impact that good and poor sleep have on just about every sort of biological, psychological, cognitive, uh, physical process of the body. And what's fascinating even more to me, Ollie, was the fact that we all do it. And yet nobody is ever instructed on how to sleep, right? When I was growing up, it was basically like you go behind a closed door, eight hours later, you're supposed to wake up feeling refreshed. Clearly, it's much more complex than that. 
uh, but it was never really described or, or no real education was provided um, for something that's so essential. And we always receive guidance on, on breathing. You know, if we have a respiratory issue, you know, maybe have an inhaler or something like that. Um, there's some guidance on food and nutrition, those types of things, but there really wasn't a lot of guidance or education on, on how to sleep. And that's where my interest really grew. And I knew I wanted to do more uh, advanced educational work, um, whether it be in, in the medical school or in the PhD route, but I wasn't really certain yet of the actual direction. Um, so I applied for a research position uh, in uh, Dr. Bootson's laboratory after finishing that course and spent a little over a year as an undergraduate research there getting my kind of foundational uh, skills or acumen, if you will. And I had an opportunity to uh, then take my uh, propensity for warm weather up to the frozen tundra that is the Madison, Wisconsin area and and join a researcher and um, physician, Dr. David Plant, who's a psychiatrist who's board certified in sleep medicine. So I got a kind of psycho psychologist perspective with Dr. Bootson and then kind of blended that with a psychiatrist perspective with Dr. Plant. And um, truthfully, all I wasn't intending to be in Madison for more than two years uh, because of how cold it was. And I was trying to find places for graduate school training. But uh, one, I fell in love with Madison. And two, I uh, established a fantastic um, mentor-mentee relationship with Dr. Plant. Uh, and so lo and behold, I'm now here 10 years later. Uh, I'm still mentored by Dr. Plant. He serves as my primary mentor in my graduate studies. Um, and as you pointed out, yes, I'm at the final stages of my doctoral degree. All I have to do is complete that dissertation, uh, that just little thing that's dangling in front of me. Um, and then I hope to have a career that kind of bridges the clinical research and commercial domains to improve sleep health at the individual level, and then also at the population level as, um, you know, for individuals, I'm training as a clinician um, and hope to be licensed as a clinical psychologist with a specialty in behavioral sleep medicine. Um, but I have relations to industry, um, none that will have conflict with today's episode. And uh, I hope that we can utilize those emerging technologies and platforms to scale up sleep health uh, at a population level. So thank you, Ollie, for having me on. I'm excited to talk all things sleep with you, um, sleep measurement, wearables, the past, the current, the future, um, everything under the sun. For most sedentary behavior and physical activity researchers, collecting the research data is one of the most frustrating steps of a project, especially as inefficient data collection steals too much of your precious time causes unnecessary stress and hassle, and can easily derail progress of your project. This is why we devised a revolutionary new way to collect data, introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting-edge, next-generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny, waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data, a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant, and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw 3-axis accelerometer data. 
Don't compromise on the quality of your research or the project timeframes. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is sense.fibian.com. Fibian, created by researchers for researchers. Yeah, thank you. That was a really interesting, interesting introduction of yourself and how did you get interested about sleep? And I fully agree how fascinating things sleep is. And many times we think it's just just being unconscious for eight hours or I don't know. Maybe we discuss more. Is it unconscious or how do you how do you term it? And our podcast is physical activity researcher podcast and we have had a lot of episodes about sedentary behavior and physical activity. Now the field is going more also to recognize sleep because it's part of the 24-hour cycle and also because it affects the health and we should think think uh, all the things together, the activity is affecting sleep and vice versa. But maybe we start from the very very basics what what is sleep uh how much time do we have um yeah no it's it's a really critically important question right and truthfully all i'll start with this the the function of sleep at this point is still not fully determined there are some really well established theories and hypotheses such as um kind of returning resources to the brain that are utilized during our day-to-day learning, the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis, where we're kind of downscaling um, what's known as potentiation that occurred during our day-to-day hours when we take in stimulus. There's the conservation of energy hypothesis, where just naturally, you know, it doesn't make sense from an evolutionary perspective to be Uh, up at certain hours when you may not be seeking a mate or finding resources. So conserving energy makes sense. So kind of a down state, but it's clearly more than that. Um, So truly the function of sleep is not fully clarified yet, but as you said, it has broad spanning implications and it's an essential human behavior. And I really want to emphasize the word behavior because that's what it is. It's something we do. And for me, it's, I have to bring the story to kind of the evolutionary underpinnings as I like to do with like a lot of psychological things and just all of human behaviors, trying to understand, is there evolutionary merit? Why does this make sense? And for me, it doesn't make sense. Sleep goes in such contrast from what I have learned as something that is evolutionarily advantageous. You know, we're not looking for a mate. We're not seeking out food or resources. And truthfully, we're vulnerable to predation. So the fact that it has preserved across evolution in the human species, but is also, to our knowledge, um, universal across the animal kingdom, that there is a sleep-like state in just about in every species that we've um, assessed, I think highlights the merit of sleep, the import of sleep, because it does go against evolutionary principles, and yet every species does it, right? And for us, it seems to be such a prolonged period of vulnerability that it must carry some unique import. So that's kind of the like broad spanning what is sleep. It's a human behavior that's essential. And to our knowledge, there is no human being that is resilient long-term against insufficient sleep health, whether that be duration or quality. Some may think so, 
and some may have a genetic variant that makes them a little bit more tolerant to acute uh, sleep deprivation. But to our knowledge, it is critically essential for short and long-term health. Now, sleep itself is uh, a complicated human behavior that we're still trying to understand, right? And you said a word earlier that I want to circle back to, and that is this notion of unconscious. When I first started, I thought we were kind of like an off switch, right? When I was younger in my my academic journey, uh, before really diving into sleep, that during the day we're active, there's things going on in our brain, and when we go to sleep, off switch, the brain goes off. And clearly that's not what's going on. Um, and the purpose of that in many ways is to remain connected to our external environment. You know, it makes sense to be able to pick up auditory tones in this downstate or to be able to peripherally connect, but not fully attend to your environment. So we don't want to shut off during this period, whatever this period is, but we want to, there is alterations in how the brain um, and body move through these stages of sleep. And truthfully, the stages of sleep are, uh, what I wouldn't want to say artificial, but they're human constructs. So it may be that there's more valid representations of these, but right now, the best classification of sleep is broken down into five unique stages. And the first one all you and I are doing right now, that's called wake. And I always want to normalize that, that wake is a part of sleep. Healthy sleep involves some time to fall asleep. So that's some wake. And healthy sleep invites in the notion that you should wake up one or two times a night to use the bathroom. And it's about your ability to get back to sleep on whether it's unhealthy or healthy. But that's some wake as well. And we're going to have some unconscious arousals throughout the night. So wake is an inevitable part of sleep. But from there, we categorize the next four stages into two main categories. One is called non-rapid eye movement sleep. And one is called rapid eye movement sleep. And clearly, us in the sleep research field, we're not that creative because we basically coined it rapid eye movement sleep because you can see eye movements during that period that generally map onto some of the cognitions that are going on, the dreaming that is often attributed to that stage. Within non-rapid eye movement sleep, we have three distinct stages. And again, we're not that creative because we call them N1, N2, and N3. Now, I spend a lot of my time in research focusing on N3 sleep because that's called slow wave sleep. And it's called slow wave sleep because, again, we're not that creative. When we put you under EEG or electroencephalography and measure your brain activity, we see your brain go into these much higher amplitude, lower frequency waveforms that are slower waves, hence slow wave sleep. And that's a proxy into kind of the neuronal activity that's going on underneath the surface. So even right now in our sleep measurement, which I'm sure we'll talk about at length, we're not directly measuring sleep. We're using proxies to kind of identify different stages and and mechanisms of sleep. Uh, But each of these stages seemingly has unique import. So we know that REM sleep, for instance, has differential impact on memory processing and consolidation than non-REM sleep. Doesn't mean that one is better than another or more important. It just means that they have distinct purposes. And for me, what I'm always interested in from a clinical perspective and a research perspective with a lot of the patient populations that I'm trying to to help assist their clinical care with is deriving restoration from sleep. And slow wave sleep seems to be most intimately linked to that. Uh, And in the research field, we often use a term called slow wave activity, 
which is basically the amount of slow waves that you're having during a period of time as a proxy into your restoration from sleep. Um, when you sleep deprive someone, their need for sleep increases and that directly maps onto an increase in slow wave activity. So I'm biased, but I generally believe that that deep slow wave activity or deep slow wave sleep is probably the most important for kind of day-to-day functionality and probably long-term health. Um, but that does not mean that the other stages of sleep are not important as well, as they also carry their own unique um, connection to regulating various processes in the biology. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.